Welcome to Lawyers on the Block, a crypto law podcast from Roman Kubiak and myself, Kieran Forsyth, in the private wealth group here at Hugh James. Over the series, we'll be looking at some of the major issues and hot topics in the crypto and digital asset space right now. Trigger warning, we are lawyers, so we'll inevitably talk about some of the legal issues involved. But don't worry, we'll try to keep the legal jargon to a minimum. Imagine the scenario where you have sent across millions of pounds or worth of money to a trading platform or to a cryptocurrency platform or to any kind of platform where cryptocurrency can be converted to fiat currency. And all of a sudden, you realize that the platform is fraudulent. So what do you do? And where can you go for help? And which courts will try and assist you? And that's very much what we're discussing today. I'm joined by Roman Kubiak. Hello, hello. How are you? And we're going to be discussing the case of the lawyer against person unknown and others, which is a, a recent case from this year. Which is really, really fascinating. Not um, to be confused with the lawyers, which is us. It's the <laughs> lawyer, I think it's Italian, isn't it? So the lawyer. He is, yeah. Admittedly, we had to Google the pronunciation of that. Because yeah, so we have, I didn't got that wrong. Yeah, apologies if we have. Now, Roman, I don't know if you want to go through the, the, the facts of the case or do you want me to do that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, I mean, I think the thing that interested or piqued our origin, wasn't it, was that this boils down to the method of service. So... This case, it's actually it's a hearing of an application, and the judgment is, is fairly short. It's it's you know it's on six pages, it's five sides actually of, of decision, which as judgments go, is pretty concise. Yeah. And the background to it is that Mr. De Lawyer issued an application for interim injunction, injunctive relief, and disclosure, and various other orders against a number of defendants arising out of what he alleged were, and what certainly seemed in the facts to be, fraudulent misappropriation of cryptocurrency. Now, that took the form of, well, $2.1 million, or $2.1 million USDT, sorry, one form of cryptocurrency, and 230000 USDC. So that's USDT, so it's a stable coin, and which is pegged or follows the US dollar. Obviously, the US dollar is what we call a fiat currency. That doesn't mean it's a currency which only allows you to buy cute little Italian cars, <laughs> but rather it's a currency that isn't backed by an asset such as gold or silver, but instead is government-backed. So the government declares it to have a value. So it allows for things such as quantitative easing, so creation of more money and with fiat currency. And notes and coins aren't actually that value yeah, they don't actually necessarily have that value, but the government ascribes that value to them. Yeah. So it's a physical representation of value at any one time. Anyway, I digress. So he essentially said, Mr. Lai said he'd been a victim of a scam to induce him to transfer these millions from his Coinbase and Crypto.com wallets, which are very well known in the market and you know stood up quite well. Although we spoke in another podcast with Jake more than we about how they're not always. 100% secure. No. But it translates them to these persons unknown. And one feature of many of these cases is that the defendants are often persons unknown because 
the very nature of crypto assets is anonymity, isn't mm-hmm. it? These persons are known were hidden behind a website of tda-finan.com. Yeah. And there was a suggestion that they misused the logo and essentially sought to hold themselves out in some way as being associated with or being legitimate American regulated business called TD Ameritrade, which they're not. Now, it's interesting because the judge in that case, Mr. Justice Trower, called it his disastrous investment. Mm. And the company is actually registered in Hong Kong and have nothing to do with Ameritrade themselves. So, in short, Mr. Lowe made these numerous deposits into two named wallets. And these, the addresses of those are recorded on the web platform associated with TDA Phenom. And believing that they have custody of this cryptocurrency, he then traded using their facilities. And he traded on their platform. And on the face list, it, things looked okay. Then earlier this year, his open trades were closed. Yeah. And he stuck, took steps to try and discover what happened. And you know, he tried to test the system by submitting a withdrawal. Lo and behold, his withdrawal request was blocked. His account was blocked. And he then entered into a few email communications. And, you know, fool me once, shame on you. But yeah. what happened is he then emailed an email address, tda at 58mal.com, and was then, the judges is induced to make further deposits for various reasons, which on the face of it, turned out, well, it did turn out to be fraudulent or fraudulently expressed. So he lost even, even more cash. And now his account with TDA Freedom records a value of zero for his investments. He instructed an intelligence investigator, Mitmark, they're called. And they concluded that it was highly likely that those behind the TDA Freedom.com address have been using it as a way of imitating the well known brokerage firm to con unsuspecting investors such as Mr. DeLoya, out of funds. Now, more significantly is that these funds have been transferred to a number of private addresses and exchanges operated by other defendants in this case, and they've been transferred to one or more wallets held in Binance, which is the main second defendant up here, and then others. And basically, it was uh, well, sent essentially across the world. So this application is Mr. DeLoya's attempt to seek injunctive relief on those funds that have been transferred and relevant disclosure from these trading platforms to release information about these persons unknown to try to operate this and crucially then have permission to serve his claim Mm. potentially out of the jurisdiction and the means by which it does. Is that a fairly accurate summary would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the, the important thing to get across is that his loss in relation to all of this, is approximately 2.1 million US dollars. It's not it's, sniff, though, is it? No, it's, it's, it's a huge amount of money. And uh, Mr. Deloya himself is domiciled in England, which is a very important point, which we'll get on to later, is a founder of, of Microgame, which is an online gambling technology business. So, you know, you would think he's pretty savvy technology-wise and astute, and, and I'm sure he, he is. It just goes to show how dangerous this area is and how you need to be absolutely certain within the world of cryptocurrency that what you are investing in and which platform you use is absolutely what it says it is and that you are happy with it. Everyone's heard of Coinbase. I know Jake Moore, who as Roman said we spoke to previously, says that even Coinbase is not foolproof 
But of course, they you know they, they are a proper entity as opposed to this TDA finance. Yeah, and it just goes to show, I think, that the real danger there, you know, someone that is potentially more astute than most of us, certainly myself, and I don't know about you, Raymond, but on on a on a technological oh, point yeah. of view, still manages to transfer two point one million to a fraudulent entity, and thankfully brought this action in the English and Welsh courts, which is an interesting point all on its own. On that point, so because the first hurdle that, that I guess the journey to overcome here was, can this be heard yes. in England and Wales, isn't it? So, and he found that there was a good arguable case, that what they called the, the Lex Citus, that's, so the legal situation of the crypto asset is the place where the person who owns it is domiciled. Yeah, and that's so important. Yeah. I think the reason why that's massively important is to pave the way for potential future litigation. The English courts are essentially saying, if you're domiciled in England Wales, regardless of where your asset is actually located, be the Bahamas or wherever Who it is. Who knows where with many digital assets or cryptocurrencies, yeah. You can still rely on English courts, which are still the, really, they are a very effective legal venue, venue yeah. to, to bring forum, forum, forum yeah. to bring litigation. The judge wanted to help the lawyer here, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously it had to analyze that and it looked at various other cases. There's a case called Ion Science Limited and that was again another person's unknown and Binance again featured there. The judge said that not only is the situs of the asset in England and Wales, but so the claims governed by English law because the damage occurred in England mm. when the English asset was basically taken from Mr. Deloya. So because of that, it follows that English law is the governing law by application of Article 4.1 of the Rome to Convention. Yeah, and interestingly, he, he put forward that there could potentially be a claim in constructive trust, which is in itself another equitable relief, to use the, the phrase often used in court proceedings, to try and help out Mr. Deloya. So you can see that essentially if, if someone has been fraudulent in, in taking your holdings or whatever it may be, at the end of the day, there could still be a constructive trust element, which if you can't get any relief in any other way, is the equitable avenue could potentially still be available to you. So that's really interesting. Yeah, it's um, they're saying that you know, these people hold... So that's it. Or, yeah, hold something on that trust potentially. So potentially, because it wasn't making a decision on the facts of the case, but rather whether to make the various orders sought to instigate it. But what he went on to say was that Binance Markets Limited, the English company, he didn't feel that they had sufficient control over the wallets yeah. to put themselves in a position of being a trustee. So. He wasn't making a decision that was saying at this point he didn't feel that was the case. Yes. It's a very technical area, isn't it? Constructive trust case. It, it shows that there is potentially an avenue there, which, which is important. But where were so the, the defendants? I mean, this is why he brought it against persons unknown, because this is the whole issue with yeah. cryptocurrency is that you, and, and the cryptographic element of it, you, you don't know who you're dealing with on, on the other side. I think the judge in this matter thought that, or he appeared to accept that. They were all outside the jurisdiction, of course, and the evidence is relatively clear that the, the second and fourth to seventh defendants were based in Panama, Cayman Islands, Seychelles, and Thailand. Oh, so, God, and you can just imagine the steps to take to you know, let them get a decision, trying to enforce that. It's going to be, we're not seeing the end of this one in the court of where this is just the beginning. No, so I mean, he, you know, this got as far as 
yes, you're allowed to serve your proceedings outside of the jurisdiction. And that was a key first point, wasn't it? That was the first hurdle. Yeah. And we'll get on to the very interesting manner in which service was, was, was <laughs> yeah. effective. But then, of course, there's the very real world issue of enforcing. So how is he actually going to get that 2.1 wow. million back? Exactly, exactly. This is, I think that does pose a real problem. But yeah. you know, from a legal perspective, this is a great case. I mean, it, it's the principles, though, are, are principles that are familiar to many people, you know, litigators who regularly deal with the civil procedure rules, because the question on whether to serve out of the jurisdiction relied on whether this bloke could rely on one of the gateways under practice direction 6b which looks like you know whether you can whether the court can give them permission to serve out of the jurisdiction now it turns out that it could there are a number of gateways he cited and one of the gateways was gateway nine which is on the grounds of the, to claim in tort where damage has been or will be sustained resulting from an act committed or likely to be committed within the jurisdiction or the damage was sustained or will be sustained within the jurisdiction. So the judge was satisfied on that point, was satisfied on various other points. He was satisfied that, that there's a constructive trust gateway, that's the 15th gateway. Yeah. Quite likely that the claim relates wholly or principally to property within the jurisdiction. Again, that goes back to the jurisdiction point. And so felt that there was a gateway, at least one, that justifies service out of the jurisdiction. What did that service then look like, Kieran? Well, this is the very, very interesting thing, a really welcome, flexible approach taken by the court because service, as, as you and I know, Roman, and you more so than me, is typically affected by postal routes, email routes. There have been some quite novel services allowed, things such as Twitter, um, yeah. was, was allowed a couple of years ago. I had one where recently, actually, where we were allowed to serve by WhatsApp. Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it, it shows you, you know, that the English and Welsh courts are flexible in their approach. But really, really interestingly here is that service was allowed to be affected by way of non-fungible token or NFT. Sure. What, 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 what do we mean by a non-fungible token then? I mean, essentially, it's, you know, many people will, will associate it, won't they, with uh, the, the smoking ape picture, won't they? And things like that. But I mean, at its very core, something is non-fungible if it can't be replaced, if it's if it's one essentially one of a kind. So fungible is an economic term. It refers to a good or asset that can be exchanged for another good or asset of equal value. So if something's non-fungible, it means it can't be swapped for something of completely equal value. So something that's fungible, i.e. a one pound coin. So we're talking about our fiat currency and notes. I can give my one pound to you, you give me one back, everyone trades on that. Something that's non-fungible, something that's unique. So a tract of land, a piece of art. Dare I say, you know, Jack Dorsey's first ever ever tweet. Yeah, absolutely. So the NFT generally shows an exclusive ownership of a particular digital asset. But I guess in this case, where its real benefit might lie is that it's a record on a blockchain, is that right? Yeah, so, and, and I think the, the judge was, although it was a flexible and welcome approach, I think pretty much took it for granted that this would be a really effective way of service because of the manner in which the NFT would attach to the blockchain. And the way it was described in, in, in the judgment is that it would be done by a form of airdrop 
And crucially, that airdrop would be into the TDA Finance wallets in respect of which the claimant first made his transfer. So the idea being that it would attach itself to the blockchain. That is then, as we know, with blockchain, everyone can see it. It's a permanent record, isn't it, which can't be changed, yeah. Exactly. So the idea being that that is a really good and effective method of service because it's Guarantees they see it, isn't it? It's highly visible. Yeah, at exactly. least for, for the person who's, who's holding that wallet, isn't it? And that's, and that's the yeah. point, I think. And yeah. that's really the sexy part of the application, wasn't it? That was the bit that made the headlines. Yes, because it's the first time in England and Wales, and I believe the first, the second time in the world, I think America, there was an American case where this was done previously. And, you know, it, it really does show that the courts are, to use their phrase, embracing the blockchain technology yeah we're looking at em- embedding service of that claim in the blockchain so that's it is there that's, yeah. that's good evidence of it isn't it i mean you know you're not waiting for the uh, two blue ticks on whatsapp here are you it is there no um, absolutely and forget airdrop it's a mic drop <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right and uh, you know in, in their own words i mean there can be a, no objection to it because it's likely to lead to a greater prospect of those who are behind the website that fraudulent website yeah being put on notice of the making of this order and the commencement of these proceedings so it's it's absolutely fascinating using the very technology that that undid mr deloy's seemingly sound investment to then actually help him out in the end i think is 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 really really fascinating you know overall the idea is that the english and welsh courts are showing that they're flexible they're starting to understand how all of this works and how it can be useful in proceeding. They want to help, don't they? It's, yeah. Um, so that was the, the sort of the sexy part of the decision. Then the the more, let's say, you know, more mundane parts, but you know, this is where actually this is what works our appetite is first one was the application for injunctive relief. Mm. Now, apart from the third defendant, they felt that actually injunctive relief could be granted. So the judge did grant that relief, although quite how that will work in practice is a different story, isn't it? But that was fine. So that was granted. In fact, that, that was granted. Basically, there was a serious issue to be tried here, yeah. i.e. fraudulent com- you know, company, people taken £2.1 million. Pounds. I think that's a fairly serious issue to be tried. Uh, I'd be pretty upset. I mean, I'd be pretty happy if I had that money to start with to lose, but I'd be pretty upset. And then in relation to disclosure, so they were looking at, you know, are there good grounds, first of all, for concluding that the cryptocurrency belonged to Mr. Deloitte in the first place, while they held that there were. And then was there a real prospect the information sought will lead to the preservation of those assets? And again, they thought it would. And here, really, we're looking at disclosure from currently this trading platform, from Binance and the people, the holders, where these people have their wallets. And then the final important question was the impact of disclosure sorts will have on any duties of confidentiality that might be owed to third parties. Something, now, the lawyers among you listening to this will probably be familiar with Norwich Pharmacall. This is a species of that, I guess, that's called a banker's trust order. Mm. And it's from banker's trust case. And essentially an order which requires a financial institution, so potentially a bank or a trading platform, to provide information and documents in respect of a customer who it's believed has carried out a fraud. So it's quite a wide-ranging, useful disclosure order, generally, you know, and it's and it's one which in, in the world of you know, 
finance education, banking education is useful. But specifically, you can see how it can lend itself to cryptocurrency education, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing, really. I think, you know, ultimately it just shows. I think everyone felt very sorry for the lawyer. Um, he obviously had good counsel on board, good representation, and they put the best foot forward, you know, and, and trying to explain to someone how all of this should be done who may not, in, in, in the real sense, in the practical sense, know how actually it, it, it is to be affected in terms of, and I'm going back to the, the service by NFT point. Yeah, it's, it really is a very, very welcome decision outside of the very nitty-gritty legal aspects that, that Rome is talking about there in terms of the, the banker's trust case and getting over that hurdle. I think it also shows that lawyers and judges are really fast becoming experts and are experts in this field. I mean, you look at it, the court in this case could have taken one of two views. Now, if it had granted this, you know, they had looked at this from a Norwich Pharma cause of cases, relief for disclosure, it probably wouldn't have granted it. But what the judge did is he distinguished the cases which applied that relief with those applying the banker's trust order. And one of those cases was the iron science case I mentioned earlier, the iron science. And again, surprise, surprise, persons unknown case where the high court permitted a banker's trust order against crypto exchanges out of jurisdiction there to compel disclosure. And that case related to allegations of fraud in relation to a cryptocurrency initial coin offering or an ICO. And and the fact is here, A, these, are, these judges are specialists now and they're fast becoming specialists in this, in this emerging field of law, litigation and technology. And B, it's clear he really wanted, as you say, to help out Mr. Deloya. Yeah, I, th- I think you know, that's ultimately where that judgment and, and hearing got to. It, it would be interesting to see what happens in the end, uh, you know, whether Mr. Deloya is actually successful in recovering. Those. That's the key, isn't it? Yeah, so you, you, you can spend you know, X, X amount of pounds, fiat, in, in bringing the case uh, to the court's attention, but you really need to be sure at the end of it all that you're going to recover it. And, and that's why it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this plays out. But yes, you know, we hope you enjoyed that summary. And uh, Roman, is there anything else you want to say on that? No, I think just uh, watch this space. Yeah, and, and we'll bring you a podcast on the outcome, potentially. Absolutely. If it's a good one. If it's a good one. Well, if it's a bad one, I'm sure you'll hear it here first. So yeah, yeah thanks very much. And now we come to our Ask the Expert segment, the part of the podcast where you, the listener, gets to ask us a crypto or digital asset question, which we'll do our best to answer. So today's question is, how would Satoshi Nakamoto be taxed if he suddenly sold all of his Bitcoin? Would that be different if his estate sold it after he died? We've obviously been talking about Satoshi Nakamoto, the infamous founder of the Bitcoin blockchain who even gives his, her, or their name to the very tiniest of Bitcoin denominations, the Satoshi, which represents a 100 millionth of a Bitcoin. Anyway, there are a few key questions which I'd need to ask before I could give an answer. The first one is to establish who is or are Satoshi Nakamoto. Is it an individual, a collective of individuals, a company, a charity, or something else? Next question is, where are they resident for tax purposes? Then we'd ask where the Bitcoin's located. That, of course, isn't such an easy question to answer. Many people don't hold Bitcoin per se, but instead trade or invest on currency exchanges with Bitcoin, in which case the assets are likely located wherever the trading platform's based. 
I'd want to know whether the sale was at market value, less or more. And crucially, what gains or losses were made as between the acquisition and the sale. Presumably, though, if we're dealing with the founder or founders of Bitcoin, there are likely to be a big old chunk of gains. Let's assume then that our friend Satoshi Nakamoto is an individual and that they're residents in England and Wales for tax purposes. In that case, while HM Revenue and Customs doesn't consider crypto assets to be currency or money, that doesn't mean they aren't subject to tax. HMRC's view is that the treatment of cryptocurrencies for tax purposes depends on the nature of the crypto asset and the extent to which it has an underlying asset, i.e. if it's essentially a digital representation of an asset such as, say, gold. If so, HMRC will treat the location of the crypto asset as the location of its underlying asset for tax purposes. But where the crypto asset is an asset distinct from any underlying asset, such as Bitcoin, then HMR's view is that the location of the crypto asset for tax purposes will be determined by the residency of what they call the beneficial owner, i.e. the person who benefits from it. Many people have criticized that approach, though, and STEP, who are one of the leading global organizations on trust and estates, have commented that in formulating principles to allocate a location to cryptocurrency, we would expect a court starting point to be the principles that have been applied in allocating an artificial location to other types of intangible property. These include matters such as enforceability, recoverability, transferability, location of any physical assets to which the intangible is attached, and the place where ownership is recorded or registered. It is notable that the residence of the beneficial owner is not a principle that has previously been applied in allocating a location to intangible property. So let's assume that that's the case here. In that case, individuals who hold crypto assets as a personal investment are potentially liable to pay capital gains tax on any disposal of those assets. Currently, subject to an individual's tax-free allowance of £12,300 in the financial year 22 to 23, any lossage which can be claimed over the past four years and potentially allowable reliefs, capital gains tax is charged at 10% if Satoshi was a basic rate taxpayer or 20% if they're a higher rate taxpayer. Where any individual's activities are deemed by HMRC to constitute financial trading, then in such cases, income tax rules might take or likely will take priority over the capital gains tax rules, in which case it would be income tax which would apply. But let's assume that's not the case here and that Satoshi is a higher rate taxpayer. In that case, they'd have to pay 20% capital gains tax on any gains over their annual allowance, £12,300, less any previous losses claimed, and any reliefs that might apply. So what reliefs might apply? For instance, can you claim costs of mining Bitcoin? It's a big part of cryptocurrency generation and transaction verification. However, the associated costs can't usually be treated as allowable deductions for capital gains tax although it is possible to deduct some of these costs against profits for income tax purposes. And what about if the assets were sold on death? Well, crypto assets are also potentially liable to tax, again, applying the, what's called the CITUS or location rules, which I've already mentioned. In that case, though, they'd be potentially subject to inheritance tax, which prevails over capital gains tax. Indeed, beneficiaries are treated as receiving any such assets at their probate or date of death value, i.e. the value is potentially uplifted for capital gains tax purposes to the date of death. That's known as the base cost uplift. There have been rumours that this uplift might be scrapped. They would take a brave chancellor to effect that change, certainly a brave Tory chancellor. 
As such, and assuming the value remains steady and was sold immediately, then you could have an inheritance tax. Inheritance tax is payable at the rate of 40% subject to a tax-free allowance known as a nil-rate band of up to £325,000 for individuals. But in addition, if Satoshi was widowed, they may also be able to claim their deceased partner's unclaimed nil-rate band, potentially giving them a tax-free amount of up to £650,000. Similarly, if Satoshi's Bitcoin were part of their wider business, then they may qualify altogether for what's known as business property relief. It's important to be aware, though, that if they're not sold within two years and then realize a gain as against the probate value, it's not possible to claim the annual capital gains tax allowance, which for estates, it's worth noting, is actually half of an individual's personal allowance, so currently £6,150. So I hope that that answers that question. But as you can see, it's not straightforward. So my take-home advice is always to speak to professionals could save both a lot of money and a lot of bother. And there we have it. That wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks for listening to Lawyers on the Block. If you made it this far, then you clearly enjoyed it. So why not subscribe to make sure you hear the next episode as soon as it comes out. Remember, nothing on this podcast is financial or legal advice. But if you do want to talk to a lawyer about any crypto issues that you may have, then please do get in touch at crypto at hughjames.com. Thank you.